Correspondent covering economics and global affairs for Al Jazeera America, the U.S. cable news channel that covers both domestic and international news. Ms. Patricia Sabga is our guest. Patricia, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome. How are you today? Oh, thanks for having me, Leslie. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, let's talk about the uh, let, let's bring people up to speed. I think a lot of people might be, and 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 quite frankly, uh, rightly so, confused uh, where things stand with TPP. People hear about votes. People hear about Democrats going against the president. People hear about yet uh, another vote and where things stand and things being tweaked just a bit to have it more palatable uh, to those uh, both left and right who do not side with the president 100% with regard uh, to uh, the uh, TAA, the Trade Adjustment Assistance. Um, so l- let's talk about this so that people understand what the trade adjustment assistance is because there's so many things with initials and with trade so they know which is what and what is being voted on and what the TAA is and why. Well, I know. It is like acronym soup, isn't it? So you've got trade adjustment assistance, and this is basically a provision to help workers to basically lose their jobs because of global trade agreements, people whose jobs have been shipped overseas. Now, this provision was tied to another acronym called uh, TPA, which is the Trade Promotion Authority, and that's an acronym. That's basically fast track. And what fast track does is when a trade bill goes before Congress, Fast Track prevents lawmakers from going in and cherry-picking out the bits they don't like. It prevents them from putting, attaching other provisions to it. It basically, it basically submits the trade agreement to an up-or-down vote, a yes-or-no vote in Congress. And if you can imagine, in, a, in the case of yet another acronym, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that's the monster trade deal that's being negotiated between the United States and 11 other Pacific nations. Now, those negotiations have been going on for almost 10 years. So just imagine if every lawmaker in all 12 countries could go in and jettison this or put this caveat on it. Nothing would ever get done. So you actually, there's, there's no way to get a trade agreement really through Congress without fast-track approval. Uh, I... I want people to understand why fast-track approval can be very dangerous for the average American. And not just now, but going forward, once somebody in office like President Obama leaves. Okay, so one thing, we should put fast-track in perspective. Now, one thing you'll hear is that every president since Nixon has been granted this fast-track authority to move trade deals through. But a lot of Democrats are looking at the legacy of NAFTA, and they're going, whoa, wait a second. And one thing that really concerns them are the amount of jobs that have been shipped overseas and also the erosion effect on U.S. wages, the lowering of U.S. wages as a result of globalization. These are two huge concerns. There's another big concern that's lesser well-known, but people are very, very concerned about the impact on U.S. sovereignty. And this is because of a provision that's in, frankly, thousands of trade and investment agreements. It's called investor-state dispute. And in a nutshell, what that does is it allows multinational corporations to sue governments when they adopt policies or regulations that can harm corporate profits. Now, even though this provision has been around for a long time, the tendency to use it has really exploded in recent years. And these suits are not, they don't play out in national courts or or in a court that you think of. They're actually arbitrated behind closed doors by a panel of basically corporate lawyers that sit above governments, and their decision is binding. So a lot of people are also very concerned about the impact 
of these trade agreements, frankly, on sovereignty and democracy. And it's not just a concern here either. There's another giant trade agreement that's under negotiation right now, which is TTIP. That's the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership between the United States and European Union. And there have been some very fearsome debates in Europe about whether to go forward with this trade agreement because so many people are opposed to this investor state dispute mechanism that basically puts these um, it's, it's a parallel justice system if you will that that enables corporations to sue governments through private trade courts we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to you if you want to join us and you have a question or a comment for patricia sabga correspondent covering economics and global affairs with al jazeera america back with patricia sabga Correspondent covering economics and global affairs with Al Jazeera America. Patricia, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Uh, we are talking about the vote on the trade adjustment assistance, which Patricia in the last segment explained. Um, and the um, the vote would be to extend the deadline to July 30th for them to vote on the uh, TAA, correct? The uh, TAA providing assistance to U.S. workers that are harmed by these trade deals. Right. So this is also this is bound up as well with um, what we discussed earlier, which is the fast track legislation. So this is this is part and parcel of that. So the TAA has to be voted on in order for President Obama to get the fast track authority to submit these trade agreements to an up or down vote in Congress. The president and the GOP leadership aren't yet in a position where the TAA is any more likely to pass it, at least this moment in time at the end of July, correct? Well, what they're doing is they've been, you know, they've, they've been working quite hard and trying their best to, to get these votes through. And you really have to look at that. President Obama has put a tremendous emphasis on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Again, that is the monster trade agreement between the United States and 11 other Pacific nations, which would represent about 40 percent of global economic output. And the reason he's putting such an emphasis on this is this is all part of the president's big pivot to Asia. This is also, it's not just about tearing down trade barriers. Um, the president is also billing this as, as helping to counterbalance, if you will, the rise of China, which is not included in the Trade Pacific Partnership. There's also a very strong strategic element to, to this as well. And just a great example of that is Defense Secretary Ash Carter recently said the passing TPP is as important to him as a new aircraft carrier. So that's how important this trade agreement is seen as bound up with U.S. influence in the region and also U.S. security. So I think what they're doing here, and it's it's interesting that you point to that because I, I had read that as well. And when you look at it, I don't think people are looking at this um, having any kind of a marriage, even dating relationship with security, but it very well can because it changes the alliance and the relationship uh, between the United States and uh, these Asian countries or elevates it at least with this deal in play. So uh, some people might say, yeah, but they're getting the better end of the deal with trade. Certainly unions do, and I agree with the unions on that, um, that this is not going to help uh, Americans and create American jobs. Uh, but this is an example, perhaps, in why it's so secret uh, to uh, political members to have to go behind that screen and then behind closed doors to read you know, what the TPP, obviously, is all about, uh, because it is entrenched and uh, interwoven with uh, security, uh, this relationship, if TPP is passed. Do you think if this were outlined more by the president uh, and uh, the uh, politicians to the American people, even perhaps to the unions, that some people might do a 360 with their opinion on the TPP? 
Um, now, the, the Obama administration has been making a hard push. They were for a while linking TPP with security, saying this is important, this is important to be, you know, for the U.S. to provide a counterbalance to China's rising influence. But then they were really hit up with criticism because so many people are looking at the experience of NAFTA and they're looking at how many jobs were lost to NAFTA and looking at what happened with U.S. wages. And this is a very, very real concern. And so that's why you keep hearing opponents um, are screaming from, from the rooftop, if you will, race to the bottom. So you have to look at, at that trade-off. So you've, you've seen at different times the Obama administration emphasize the security angle, then push back and emphasize saying that there will be strong protections for workers, that this will be a fair agreement, that it gives us a say in global trade going forward. Um, but you always have to look at economics and security are always bound up together. They are not separate at all. They are completely interwoven. So any trade agreement that you look at, that's going to bind other countries closer to us because it's going to make them more economically dependent on their trade with us by tearing down those trade barriers. Some people might say, why do we need uh, why why would we need some of the Pacific Rim nations? Uh, not talk, let's not even talk about China, but the others. Um, okay, why do yes. why why do we need a relationship with them with regard uh, to security? Because a lot of people just look right now at the Middle East, obviously, and all of those uh, you know uh, Muslim nations uh, where you know ISIS has cropped up, such as Syria, Iraq, uh, etc. So so why is this? So, you know why are Asian nations so essential to this security puzzle and relationship? Okay, so you just have to sort of look at the at the great chessboard that is the globe, if you will. I mean, we don't exist in a vacuum. We rely on trade. Uh, we need ex- we need imports and exports. We need to get our goods to markets overseas, and we need to get goods from overseas over to ours. So let's take a look at the South China Sea, for example. Now, the South China Sea, um, you've had rising tensions because you have many, many nations laying claim to the resources within the South China Sea, um, hydrocarbons fish, that sort of thing. But this is also an enormously important shipping lane. About a third of the world's trade goes through the South China Sea. So you want to make sure that those lanes stay open. And that does have an impact on the U.S. economy. So this is why. I mean, we don't live in a vacuum. We don't have trade just within our borders. We are, for better or worse, in a globalized world. So what happens in the South China Sea, it can affect us on two levels. One, it can disrupt trade. But the other thing is that if um, one of the big things that's going on right now in the South China Sea is, for example, China is laying claim to a lot of it right now. And they've been on this sort of island-building exercise, if you will, to try to solidify their stake over, over disputed territories. Now, the danger is, is that now another country that's laying claims to some of those assets in the South China Sea is the Philippines, okay? We, they're, they're an ally of the United States. So basically, if you get um, if tensions lead to some sort of military conflict, then the United States can easily get drawn in through our military alliances. So we are interconnected, for better or worse. The United States is connected um, to these various regions around the globe. Uh, no question about that. It, it also increases uh, the power that the United States has. Uh, with regard uh, to the global economy, in a sense, if you know, some people say, "Look, if if we don't put this deal through, uh, where we're an active player on this big chessboard with regard to uh, the global economy, uh, then the United States is not a power that's in play in the future." 
Well, I mean, the United States has enjoyed a very privileged position since the end of the Cold War of basically being the superpower in a unipolar world. But China is rising, and it's rising quickly. And it's not just in terms of military power. China has this, this grand plan, if you will, to initiate this new Silk Road. And this new Silk Road is, basically encompasses land routes and maritime routes that encircle, that encompass parts of Asia all the way into Europe and their near seas. Now, if you can imagine, this, in, this enables China to expand its trade into these areas, but also its influence. And this is what a lot of strategists call soft power. And China's been basically using its vast foreign exchange reserves to really pump up its soft power. And a great example of this is recently um, they launched a bank that's sort of a, 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 an alternative to the World Bank. It's called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So it's a bank that exists to fund great big infrastructure projects. Okay, so initially the United States reportedly tried to dissuade its allies from joining, from signing on as founding members of this bank. But then Britain decided to sign on as a, as a founding member, and pretty soon other European allies and other, other, other allies in the Pacific signed on with this. So this is a perfect example of China's rising influence globally, using its money and its vast foreign exchange reserves to buy influence. And this is part of the challenge to the United States, which is you've got a rising power, and how are you going to counter or meet or deal with that power? Singapore's foreign minister said you are either in or you are out, and he was referring to the United States. And obviously it seems like the world is waiting, but with this the world doesn't want to and doesn't have to wait, not even for we, the United States superpower that we are, correct? Well, are you talking in terms of with trade agreements or you're mm-hmm, talking in terms mm-hmm. of what is the United – well, this is all part of the big pivot, pivot to Asia. The, the, the pivot to Asia – a large part of that is about meeting the challenge of China and countering China's rising influence. And a great example of how China can complicate things for the United States, okay, right now Russia is resurgent. We all know this. And the West has economic sanctions on Russian entities, you know, barring certain entities, you know, barring their access to longer-term financing, you know, sanctions on certain individuals. And this has undoubtedly harmed Russia's economy. But Russia, however, has all, Russia has simply just embraced China, and it has increased its trade, its trade deals with China. So there's an alternative there. And I went to a conference not so long ago. Um, it was in New York, and it was a conference on Russian-U.S. business relations. And the amount of people who were mentioning the Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank, the Silk Road Fund, all of these vehicles of China soft power that are emerging as an alternative to the U.S. and, frankly, to U.S. institutions that have long called the shots in, uh, around the globe, such as the World Bank and the IMF, where the U.S. has the majority of voting shares. When people look at the TPP, and one of the things that the TPP was meant to do is to check China's ability to, as you had just you know, pointed out, the reach that China has and the bullying, in a sense, that they, uh, they can do, especially their ability to bully smaller nations, friends of the United States, allies of the United States in Southeast Asia. And some people scratch their heads and say, but wait a minute, I, I thought just a week or two ago China was saying that they may want to be a part of the TPP. Uh, where does that stand? And if that's the case, then how do we, through the TPP and the rest of the world, keep China in check? Well, maybe... China does join the TPP and that it all becomes one giant free trade block and then 
you work together to put those standards in place. But right now, the TPP is not being negotiated with China as a part of it. It's being negotiated between the United States and those 11 Pacific nations, many of those Pacific nations that are very, very wary about China's rising power and influence, especially in the South and East China Seas. What type of provisions do you think the TPP would have to have added to it or taken out of it uh, for this uh, agreement and to be supported by the major unions who are obviously very much opposed to this? Well, that's very difficult to know because I haven't seen the agreement. Yeah, exactly. Neither have most people. <laughs> this is one of the big criticisms of trade agreements is that they're negotiated behind closed doors and they're negotiated among trade representatives, but big corporations weigh in and have quite a say in how things are fleshed out. Now, members of Congress can look at drafts of this, but it's not open to the general public. And the argument there is that, well, if the general public could weigh in and knew what was going on, then you would never get a deal done. Um, but right now, so what, what provisions have to be added? I don't know, because who knows what's in there. But I can, I can definitely tell you that the main concern is, just as what happened with NAFTA, is that the main concern is that, when it, that these agreements are not just about tearing down trade barriers, that there's a lot of other things in, those trade, in trade agreements these days. But the overriding concern for the unions is what's going to be the impact on U.S. jobs? Are more U.S. jobs going to be shipped overseas? And when you talk about the, to the race to the bottom, you really have to look at the impact on U.S. wages. Now, wage stagnation is a huge problem with the economy right now because the jobs market has really been on fire. And in the last employment report, we saw some hopeful signs that U.S. wages, you know, that, that Americans were, were finally getting a little bit of a raise, but they need to get a much bigger raise because two-thirds of our economic, of our GDP, of our economic output is consumer spending. So the more people make, the more they spend. But wages have been stubbornly stagnant. And just to put this in perspective for you, the median household income was about 8% lower last year than it was in 2007. So you know, I, I live in Los Angeles, California, and Hollywood, as you know, are huge supporters of Democrats, usually, largely, uh, and uh, the president is no exception. And the reason I say that is, you know, I, I scratch my head why a president who was uh, financially helped greatly, as every Democrat is, by the unions, or most Democrats are by the unions, um, would turn his back on his party uh, on the people that have written checks for him who, who, you know, he supported. And in a sense, in politics, when somebody writes a check, you do your best to make them happy. Uh, we know that's part of the back scratching of the, the game of politics. But there is an aspect, and like you said, I certainly haven't had the opportunity to read this. Ha ha. Uh, I'm not, I wasn't invited to the secret room. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am uh, certainly not an elected uh, congressional member. But, the, you know, there are deals that prohibit the film industry greatly overseas and that costs them a lot of money and uh, strangle them creatively and with respect to decision making also with uh, respect to time which does you know tie into cost um, have you heard anything about this and if so could it be that Hollywood has more influence over the president perhaps than unions um, well, definitely there are said to be provisions on intellectual property, if you will, that are a part of this, on protecting intellectual property. And there are many businesses um, that as part of this trade agreement, they're tired of having their intellectual property pirated overseas. So they want stronger protections for that. A trade agreement is one way to do that and one way to be able to enforce those protections more. 
So that is definitely one way to do it. But when you take a look at, at, at President Obama and the arguments that he's making in favor of TPP, and the arguments that he's making is he insists that workers will be protected. He insists that workers displaced by these trade agreements will receive the training and the support that they need to get another job, uh, to, get, to get the skills that they need to meet the rise of the global economy. And if you actually take a look at, you know, when you take a look at, at many jobs that were lost to NAFTA, there were certainly jobs that were shipped overseas, you know, where labor was cheaper. That, is, that undoubtedly happened. But there are other forces at work as well. And you also have to look at the impact of, of basically automation on basically people losing their, their jobs to computers. And um, where that first started with manufacturing, now in our economy we're seeing that happening with services. So that's, a, that's another aspect of it. And, of course, the other big thing that's really impacted the U.S. labor market is really the breakdown, if you will, in the social contract between employers and employees. And part of this has to do with how our workforce is structured now. We have franchise um, structures, if you will. We have a lot of people working as temps. We have a lot of people working as independent contractors. Now, these are forces that didn't necessarily, with automation and the breakdown of the social contract, can you pin all of that on NAFTA? I think that that's a tough argument to make. Some of these forces were already in play, if you will. But, of course, it's, it's easier to blame it all on NAFTA. Were jobs lost to NAFTA? Undoubtedly. But there are just as many economists who will come out and say, yes, but it actually created more high-paying jobs because it forced us to specialize more in capital-intensive industries, if you will. Well, I didn't have uh, time to ask you uh, my last question because we're out of time, but we'll have to have you back. You did a great job, Patricia. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Patricia Sabga, correspondent covering economics and global affairs with Al Jazeera America. Check out the website for Al Jazeera America, america.aljazeera.com. On Twitter, you can follow Patricia at Patricia Sabga. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A. The last name is S-A-B-G-A, at Patricia Sabga. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. 